This is episode 11 with theater production manager and sound designer Emily Fassler. Have you ever wondered how do artists come up with ideas for their next painting? How do CEOs disrupt industries? How do chefs combine unexpected ingredients? Where do leaders find their strength and courage? Well, you've come to the right place. Magical Humans is about to make you feel seen and connected on a whole other level. My name is Vania Vananina. I'm an artist and creativity expert, and I am on a mission to talk to extraordinary people about their creativity, failures, wins, and everything in between. My wish is that these magical humans inspire you to take the leap and lead a creative life. Hi, Emily. How are you? Thank you for being here. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Vanya. I'm super excited to be here. I know, I hear you mean the podcast, but also where are you? This is a remote interview. Where are you right now? I uh, I live in Oakland, California, and most of my work is in Berkeley, California. So I mostly commute between those two places. So Emily, tell us about what do you do? What do you do in life? What do I do in life? Right now, I have a few different jobs. I work at UC Berkeley in the Department of Theater, Dance, and Performance Studies. I am the assistant production manager there. And I also work at Berkeley Repertory Theater as a day of event supervisor when they rent out um, their venues to other uh, organizations. And I also, during the summer, I uh, stopped the other two things for about two months And I am the production coordinator for the um, Berkeley Reps Ground Floor Summer Reading Lab. Wow, that sounds very impressive. <laughs> are you? Do you? Are you happy? Do you? Do you love what you do? I do love what I do. It's all I've wanted to do since I was five years old. Is be in theater. Oh, were you a theater kid? I oh yeah. <laughs> such a theater kid we from like I think my first show was when I was five or six years old I was cast as James in James and the Giant Peach in my Montessori school's production and I learned all of my lines and all of everyone else's lines so that <laughs> just in case <laughs> yeah uh, well it ended up helping because during the show One of the other kids forgot their lines and I was able to, you know, very helpfully correct him on stage. And we, yes. Yeah. And even before that, me and my siblings would, uh, we were obsessed with musicals and we would dance around the kitchen table and every meal would sort of become a big production. Oh my God. That sounds so cute. Yeah. Were your parents also musical? Like, was it a whole family affair? No, which is the funny thing. My mom, they were both. Both of my parents were really supportive. My dad even uh, substituted in to play the rabbi during Fiddler on the Roof one time when the regular rabbi couldn't make it. And that was, I think, <laughs> his first and only time on stage. My mom was really supportive, came to like almost every show. She would make these elaborate themed desserts for the cast parties, as well as write parody lyrics of the music from the show of the shows we were in uh -huh. and she's just brilliant I don't think either of my parents ever took music lessons or 
did art in the sense we think of it, but they're both very creative in their own right. Um, oh, it sounds like you were brought up in a very nurturing, creative environment. I I was, yeah. They were very supportive of my creative endeavors. And especially once in college, I sort of really decided that this was what I wanted to do. Or once I told them, I should say that this was what I really wanted to do. They, I think they were nervous because the the reputation is that it's very hard to make a living in theater, which mm-hmm. is not wrong. But it's also not unique. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not wrong, but it's not always right. Does that it's, make sense? It's not all or nothing. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I think once, once that they started seeing evidence of the fact that I could get work and like support myself, they've been, they've been a hundred percent behind me since then. They were just, they just wanted me to be able to, to live a good life, which I think is what any parent would want for their kid. Of course. And well, it sounds like you're on top of things. I I mean, giving the fact that we're all human and we, you know, life is not perfect or, or it could be, you know, sometimes I like to say that even with the chaos and loss and things that can happen in one's life that bring the balance in the beautiful and light and airy, I like to say that every moment is perfect even though, you know, we could come across hardships that don't seem like they would be a perfect experience. But, you know, I don't know. I have this philosophy that things happen for a reason. So I love that. I I absolutely think that every experience can be learned from and you the way you become resilient is by yes, is by experiencing life and, and you don't know how to how to pick yourself back up unless you've been knocked down. So I absolutely yes. agree. I love that you use that word resilience. It means so much to me. Mm. Yes. What comes up for you with that word resilience? Oh, so to try not to get too much into it, but when I was younger, I basically through all of my teenage years, I just like didn't really do my homework. I just, that was sort of my... Literally, like you wouldn't do homework that you brought from school? Yeah. I think part of it was I have this really paralyzing perfectionism. And part of it, I was also diagnosed with ADHD. And I don't take any medication for it, but sort of what you mentioned earlier about like, oh, you sound like you have it together. I have learned a lot of ways to compensate and sort of how to be able to function in the world. I've had a lot of really good therapists, honestly, and a lot of really good support and uh, people who show me that I'm worthy no matter what I produce or what I'm working on. And I think that that is really key. But that is is very core to my identity is sort of this uh, this realization of how much I was really, really bright as a kid. And I kind of like class with flying colors on all these, like the young aptitude tests. And I think there were a lot of high expectations for me. And then when the work got really high, I went to a really challenging middle school and high school. And when the work got really hard, I sort of froze up and my parents didn't really know what to do. They tried 
everything under the sun to help me. And, uh, and I just, I kind of barely graduated high school and, uh, and when I would apply myself, I would do great, but I think I just had some blockages in the way. What does it mean to live with ADHD? Uh, my brain moves really, really fast and it, uh, it sort of flits from one thought to the next very rapidly and without a lot, sometimes without a ton of through line. If I track it back, it makes sense to me, but very often I will say something and I've jumped like three steps ahead of whatever the last person said. And they'll, they'll be like, what? And I have to, I have to be like, okay, sorry, let me, let me go back. Um, so that's, that's one thing I experience a lot. Um, I can hyper-focus really, really well. If, if the mood strikes me and if I'm in the zone, I can focus on a thing for hours and hours and hours and not need a break. But I also can get really distracted really easily. And even in the middle of a sentence, um, in the middle of a project, in the middle of a task, uh, something over, you know, my brain will zoom somewhere else and it's very hard to bring it back. And sort of that, that feeling like when you walk into a room and you're like, what was, what was I doing here? Like you have to backtrack your steps a lot to be like, oh yeah, that's the thing I was doing. Um, and so that happens a lot. I, I feel I'm not currently on any medication and I haven't been for a very long time. Um, and I've just sort of found, I, I will say that I think, I think mine is relatively mild, uh, or I've just told myself that, but I have, I have found ways to sort of compensate and also just to be sort of upfront about it. Sorry to interrupt. I love of that course. you, you talked about that in, as I said, shedding light into this, uh, having these conversations about human condition mm -hmm. is so important. Yes. And when I think of resilience, I, I think of all of the times that the world was sort of telling me or trying to teach me that I wasn't good enough and basically having to show myself that I was. This is so beautiful, Emily. You have <laughs> moved me in a way that it I did not expect to happen in the first 10 minutes. And Aww. even though our experiences are different in life, you know, as, as humans, uh, I you made me feel so seen. You said two things that just mean so much to me. Therapy is the best. Yes, Amen. I 100% agree with that. If you find good counselor or therapist that you can have good chemistry with, who's someone who sees you for who you are, that can be a really great experience that can help you unravel the knots that we have in our minds and hearts and, you know, with our experiences. Mm. And you are worthy. I love that you said that. I love that you, that you said that because... It's something rare to hear people say out loud, I am worthy. Mm -hmm. And it's been, it's so affirming. So thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing that experience and your relationship with resilience. But also thank you for saying those specific things. It means a lot to me. 
And I think the conversation around worth needs to be more visible and more loud. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for saying that. I so agree. I so, so, so agree. Well, to, I mean, that's, that's how it goes. I, I, I ask something and then I ask another and some, it's like the peaks and valleys of mm -hmm. the conversation and life. And I love that you are willing to swim in the deep end with me. I love that. Not everyone is capable of that. And we all have different skills and, and capabilities, but when someone just takes my hand and dives with me, it, it's so magical. So Hi. thank you. And we haven't even talked about your amazing theater work. <laughs> and we're just here like talking about life. And I don't know, it, this, this is great. <laughs> I love it so much. I'm, I, I feel the same way. I love finding people that I can go to the deep end with. That means so much to me. Thank you. Oh, oh my God. Love Fest. We need yeah. to get together. Everyone <laughs> just eat and drink and be merry. <laughs> so coming back to theater I know you were you're from Seattle and you went to school in eastern Washington how did you end up in Berkeley so in college so I went to Whitman College and then I ended up transferring and finishing up at University of Washington in Seattle and because those were both liberal arts programs and made you do all kinds of things I ended up being a soundboard operator for a few different theater productions um, and really liked it and, you know, never thought I would end up there and really liked it. And then when I transferred to UW, I was able to fit the sound design class into my very last quarter there, but I loved it. And I uh, went to my sound design teacher, Matt Starrett, who is one of the busiest sound designers in Seattle. And I said, how do I, how do I do this for real? And after I graduated, he had me assist him on a bunch of shows, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to grad school for it yet. So the next step seemed to me to be find an internship. So I looked at sound internships across the country at different theaters, and I found the one, there was one at Berkeley Repertory Theater, and I applied for it and I got it. So I moved down to Berkeley in August of 2012 and did a year-long fellowship in sound design and engineering at Berkeley Repertory Theater. And then at the end of that year, I didn't really know what I was going to do. Um, I didn't really have any plans. And I think that somebody saw something in me slash they had watched me be interested in like all of the departments of theater. I was always sort of talking to everybody and wanting to know what everybody was doing. Um, politely, of course, not getting in their way. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and somebody said, have you ever thought about production management? And would you like to apply for the production management fellowship for next year? And I said, I don't know what a production manager is or does. And so I sat down with the production manager of Berkeley Rep, who at that time was Tom Pearl. And he and I talked about what a production manager does. And it sounded like everything I love in theater and also everything my brain is good at 
combined into one thing. Like you have to be able to zoom in and look at really detailed things and get in the nitty gritty. And then you also have to be able to zoom out and look at the big picture. And you have to be able to help people talk to one another. Um, and you also have to know a little bit about everything and you have to know who to talk to, to solve the problems. You don't have to necessarily solve the problems by yourself. And so I applied for the production management fellowship and I got that one too. Um, and they don't usually do that. Uh, but I got really lucky and I feel like the production management fellowship was where I really found myself. Well, it sounds like it's a win-win situation. Yeah, um, absolutely. They're winning by getting to work with such a talented human like you and you get to do what you love every day, surrounded by really awesome people. So congratulations on that and saying, I don't know what this means. And then, okay, I want to do that. And then getting it and then doing it. What does it actually mean to be in theater production in, in either the capacity of coordinator or assistant? What does it mean? Ooh, so um, a lot of what people see when they go to a movie or go see a show, uh, all that you can see is what's on stage. And um, it takes so much work to put that all together and so many more people than are visible on the night of And so specifically what I do is theater production management with a little bit of sound design on the side. And uh, what that means is a, a boss of mine has put it this way. He says uh, he's the production manager for the theater department at UC Berkeley. And he says, as a production manager, I am responsible for everything on stage that is not an actor. So the actors are sort of under somebody else's umbrella and As a production manager, it's our job to make sure that all of the technical elements, all of the people in charge of the technical elements are in communication with each other about priorities. And we traffic in time and money and labor or people. And so how do you allocate all of those resources in order to get the show up on time and within budget? Um, and, you know, with everybody keeping as much of their sanity as possible. So <laughs> wow. it's a lot of spreadsheets and a lot of calendars and a lot of reading people and sort of hearing people and making sure they're getting their needs met while at the same time your other person over here is getting their needs met. It's sort of seeing, it's shepherding a show from the very beginning and sort of keeping constant contact with it and overseeing it to make sure that all the pieces are coming together in the timeline in which it is supposed to come together. Wow. It sounds, it sounds like a lot, but also <laughs> it sounds super exciting because there's all these moving pieces. And once you said like you're in charge of everything that is not an actor, it's pretty much is everything, you know, <laughs> I want to talk about the Berkeley Repertory Theater. Mm -hmm. What is it? I mean, it, yes, it's a repertory theater, but what does it mean? What do they do? You talked a little bit about the capacity that you work with them, but how, what happens? <laughs> talk to me through like a season or something. So that's a really, that's a really big topic to try to cover. So Berkeley Repertory Theater is an Tony Award winning uh, nonprofit theater 
and I, I feel a little intimidated trying to trying to capture their essence. I, I didn't like run this by their PR team or anything, <laughs> but they are one of a few major theater companies in the Bay Area. They're actually celebrating their 50th anniversary season right now. And it started out really small and sort of grew and, and grew. And right now they do a true repertory company used to mean that uh, uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival is the most prominent example of this, where they, within one space, they'll have two different shows on the same day or on adjacent days. So they, they kind of unpack the whole set and all of the costumes and they, and they move it aside and they store it and then they install another show. And that has been historically what repertory meant. It means running, a sh- running shows in repertory means you're switching a show in and out of the same space. And Berkeley Rep has two different spaces that they run shows in, um, sort of overlapping the schedules, but not switching out the show. We sort of put in a show and then it stays there for four to six weeks, plus possibly some extension weeks if it's doing really well. Um, and uh, they do really, really high quality work. Many of the shows that they have produced have gone on to Broadway. Uh, a lot of commercial producers uh, have come to Berkeley Rep to workshop and do the out-of-town tryout for their show before they take it on to uh, either another stop or directly to Broadway. Um, American Idiot and Passing Strange were the two, I think, that originally were produced at Berkeley Rep that way. Uh, That was about 10 years ago now. Wow. Is American Idiot the Green Day one? Yes. Yeah. So they took that album, Green Day, the, the, men in that band are from Berkeley. And I think they... Oh, really? Billy Joe Armstrong and what is his... I think so, yeah. I think okay. they're from Berkeley, which is sort of why they chose Berkeley Rep to develop that. Oh, develop that's that show. that's really nice and special. And it makes sense for them, you know, like full circle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Other shows, the one I got to be a, a small, small part of was during uh, my second fellowship year, uh, was the year that Sir Ian McKellen and Sir Patrick Stewart uh, were here doing a show called No Man's Land. And they they rehearsed it here and they we produced it here for four weeks and I got to like be in the room with them and interact them, with them a very small bit and it was incredibly special. You're blessed forever. I got you. Very blessed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and at the same time, there are a lot there are so many other designers and directors and um, actors that come that I have gotten to interact with who are not name recognition famous, but who are class acts and so freaking good at what they do. And that overall is the kind of people that Berkeley Rep gets to bring in. And so it sort of raises, it raises the bar of what theater can be and of how people should treat each other um, while you're making art. So the, the environment at Berkeley Rep is really warm and welcoming. And we get that feedback from a lot of the artists who come through. And it's always a good reminder of uh, how special of a place it is to work. And I'm really lucky to be there. It sounds like a fantastic place. I want to live there. It sounds <laughs> like everything is, you know, like it, it sounds warm and inviting and super high quality and like there's a big stream of passion 
running around. Wow. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for explaining that. So if I understood correctly, you Berkeley Repertory Theater serves somewhat as an incubator for some Broadway shows. Would you say that? It does. And also for lots of other lots of other work as well. Um, I think that's just sort of how a lot of people can lock into it is 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 Broadway has a lot more visibility yes. nationwide wherever you are than than maybe, you know, one nonprofit theater in Berkeley, California. But I highly recommend that everyone everywhere go check out your local nonprofit theater. Um, a thriving arts community is good for for any community. For everyone, really. Yeah. <laughs> it's a win-win arts. situation. Yeah. yeah. I I will definitely do that after <laughs> we finish this conversation. So now let's talk about the summer program that you worked at, Ground Floor. Mm -hmm. Tell me, tell me more about it. Yeah. So the ground floor is Berkeley Rep's Center for the Creation and Development of New Work. And it's sort of a subset of Berkeley Rep um, through which all new work development is incubated. And the Summer Residency Lab is a month-long program uh, during which we invite playwrights and art makers from around the country and sometimes from around the globe as well to come and work on a piece and the beauty of the ground floor program this summer 2019 will be its ninth year there is an application process that is really different from i think most other residency application programs for playwrights uh it's like two pages it's a series of six or seven questions that's that's basically like who are you what do you want to work on why this project now who are your collaborators? What are you going to need while you're here? So anyone who applies does not have to have anything written yet, which I think is markedly different from many programs around the country where they want you to submit a piece of writing that you're going to be working on while you're there. Um, and so it's really important to the ground floor that we can take anybody along the spectrum of where this, where the state of their project is. So you can apply with just an idea. You can have a fifth draft of your play and it's scheduled to be a production next season somewhere. And you need to work out this one problem of whether you should cut this character or not, or whether this particular song works. That is so cool. So sorry to interrupt you, but I, oh, I felt like I needed to jump in and say that I'm grateful that these programs exist because a lot of the times in the arts, or the creative world, it's the endless catch-22 of, hey, apply for this grant or fellowship or residency, but you already have to have a, a whole project. And you're like, well, I need like a space and time to develop this idea. And that's why I'm applying. But then you have, you know, like you have to have something already. And I love that this program is accessible for everyone in the way that no matter what point of the process you're at, you are welcome. I Absolutely agree. And that is one of my very, very favorite things about working at the ground floor is it is so woven into the fabric of how the program runs that we meet artists where they are. And we don't have all of the resources of Berkeley Rep, which is a pretty large, well-equipped institution. Um, we don't have everything available to us, but we have some things. And uh, it's 
it's such a delight to get to say to an artist, what do you need to play? What do you need to create? And we may not be able to get you, you know, the full band and all of the lights and all the sound, but like, here's what we can give you. And a lot of what I do is having those conversations and seeing what will be enough of a toy, what will be enough of a resource for them to discover something in the room while they're here with us. Oh, that sounds, I, I'm not, I'm not applying and I am already, <laughs> you know, that you is should. so great. <laughs> that is so great. And especially like that phrase that you said, like, what can I do for you? What, how can I help you? What do you need? Mm -hmm. I feel that that sentiment, it's so needed in this modern world in whatever aspect and field of work, like, how can I help you? What can I do for you? Yeah. Instead of, I know this is the nature of this program, you know, to help these people bring their project to life. But I also think it's something we could all benefit from if we incorporated that philosophy in, in our lives Instead of being like, what can I get from you? What is this benefit from me? How am I going to be able to earn money or advance or social climb? Like, no, like just step back and stop for a minute and breathe and be like, what can I do for you? How can I help you? And sometimes it's not even a big deal, a big project. It's just like, oh, I just, I just needed to take a pause or I just needed a hug or, oh, I actually need a big band or something, you know? Yeah. I feel like everything you're talking about, and I don't know if this is the nature of theater or because of the magical way you explain things, but everything that you're saying, it's, I'm taking it like a metaphor mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for life. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So, Emily, what is a day in the life for you during summer when ground floor is happening? The beauty of it is that it can really vary day to day. Um, and what I also love about Ground Floor and part of, part of why Ground Floor has allowed me to grow so much is that as a production manager, what I learned, you know, there's a, the reason that theaters are able to produce plays regularly is there's sort of a system, you know, you, you get your design team together and your director and you come up with plans and then you get those to your shops and everyone sort of starts working on it in a similar rhythm. And then you start rehearsals and you rehearse the show and then you tech the show, which is when you add all of the sound and the lights and the sets and the costumes and the actors together and you work through it and then you open. And that's pretty much how most theater works. And with ground floor, you're not putting on a performance at the end. It's optional, um, but that's up to the playwright. You're not putting on a full production, I should say. So um, I do a lot of prep work leading up to uh, when an artist arrives. So each project has like what we internally call the lead artist or, the, or a couple of them. And it just means who is who sort of applied with the project and who is our main point of contact for all of the organization that happens leading up to them actually arriving at our door. How many, sorry, yeah. how many people does a program accept every summer? That's a great question. So in the five summers that I've done it, we've had as few as 16 projects. And last year was the most we've had at 22. And each of them are with us for either a week or two weeks. 
Um, I think some have been longer, but since I've been, since I've been with the program, it's each project has been one week or two weeks. And as the program has sort of grown and been recognized around the country, it's sort of gotten more popular. So I think this year they had about 700 applications. Wow. For about 18 to 22 spots. Wow. Yeah. And these are from all over the world? These are mostly from all over the country, but I think we have, I think there have been some international applications as well. Mm. And the age range? The age range. Um, I think they're usually out of people out of college, at mm. least all the way up to, I don't know. I don't, age isn't a limit. We've had, I mean, anyone who's making theater or working in theater, I think is, I shouldn't even say that. You don't even have to be working in theater. Madeline Oldham is the director of the program. She is our fearless leader and she's created the Ground Floor Summer Lab. And from the very beginning, she she's very interested in artists who create things that don't look like traditional theater as well. So she likes to help expand the notion of what theater can be. And so it's not always like a scripted play. Sometimes... Um, there was this one piece a couple of years ago uh, where uh, these, these two gentlemen were creating a museum installation piece. And one of them had this whole um, music uh, and synth setup, and the other one played the saxophone. And they had written this whole piece about uh, sort of storytelling around these pieces that they found in a museum. And it was like nothing I ever would have expected to experience, but it was so moving and sort of educational in a really lovely, unexpected way. And, and it was still theater. And that's definitely an example of what kinds of projects the ground floor is interested in, as well as, you know, some more traditional pieces. But Madeline definitely likes to curate sort of a, a mix. And she likes to make sure that no two projects look the same or, or feel the same. And we like to have all of the, the molecules bouncing off each other. You know, we have dinner together every night. Uh, one of the best parts of the ground floor summer lab is that we have a catered dinner every night. And so everyone is, is fed and we all sit down together and, you get to just be normal humans and live your life and come out of your rooms where you've been writing for eight hours that day and sort of just interact with people. And uh, a lot of, a lot of breakthroughs have happened just sitting next to each other at the dinner table. And at the end of any artist's residency with us, they have the option of uh, putting on a reading if of their piece, if they want to, it's, it's whatever is most useful to them in that moment. If it would be helpful to have audience feedback, um, then we, then we can absolutely schedule a presentation for them. Also, they don't have to, which is something that differs with ground floor from a lot of other programs as well is that we don't require a final showing. And that's really important, uh, is because work isn't always ready in its nascent stages to have an audience interaction and to get feedback. Making art can be so vulnerable. And I've heard Madeline, the director of the program, say that if something is shown before it is ready, it can really kill the progress of that project. Um, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so it's really important to us to 
really listen to the artist and let them let them lead the charge of what is best for them. And also because of that, so there is like a mailing list that you can sign up for if you're local to the Bay Area, um, if you were interested in coming to see these projects in their nascent stages, you can also keep an eye on the Ground Floor Facebook page and we post there about upcoming presentations. So I should also be clear that these just happened pretty much in the month of June um, when the residency lab is taking place. But beyond that, because so many of these projects are either so young in their development or because they're going to go on to be produced in other theaters and they might have some changes made and there's a whole lot of, of uh, copyright issues uh, that are involved in that that we won't go into here, but that exist. It's sort of just a live experience. And much like theater, uh, you sort of have to be there to witness it. And, uh, and, then, it, and then it is no more. It makes total sense uh, because theater is supposed to be, like you said, witness live. It's a whole experience to be sat there and hear the set sounds and just see the humans acting in person. So, mm -hmm. and it makes me want to go so bad. Do you have any, is there any specific part of your day during the summer love program that you are really excited about? Yes. So what I was saying about uh, theater sort of follows a rhythm is part of my growth that has happened through the ground floor is being able to use that as a, as a base, but also be able to sort of throw that all out the window because within the ground floor program, we, uh, if, if an artist, they're only there for either a week or two weeks. So everything is sort of time sensitive. Like if they decide they want something, you know, it's sort of my job to find it right away. I also should say I have an amazing, amazing team of other staff members that run the program with whom, without whom I could not do any of this. They are just so kick-ass and uh, they end up often being, it's mostly almost every year. It's a team of entirely women, which is, I have to say such a, such a revelatory experience, frankly. Um, it's a different energy and it feels so good and so powerful. And I'm just grateful every day that I work there. So we have a daily meeting where we check in sort of about every project that's there and any project that's coming and sort of things that are going on. So we have a daily meeting. And outside of that, we also have a team of ambassadors who are Uh, volunteers, usually around college age or just out of college, that are with us and that help us run the program, whom we could not do it without. And we send one into each project to act sort of as a stage manager or sort of like an in-room coordinator who takes care of that specific project and relays back to me any needs that come out of the room. So they send a report at the end of every night. So When I get in in the morning, I'm usually checking over the reports from the night before. And sometimes I will get a note about, oh, this person needs an extra space for a phone call meeting that they have to have, or they want to rehearse something. So I'm in charge of all of the spaces allocation and all of the scheduling of those spaces and of all of the people. So it's a ton of moving parts. I really like this puzzle solving. It activates a really fun part of my brain and I, I love doing it. So that'll be something weird props requests 
So some of my favorite ones have been like, do you have a bunch of rubber tires? (laughs) And we had to, and luckily there's like a tire shop two blocks away from where (laughs) we were. And so I sent some of the ambassadors to go and they like rolled tires back to, you know, the, the, the tire shop was kind enough to like donate us used tires and the ambassadors like rolled tires two blocks back to the, back to the, um, back to the office space where we work. I can only imagine how was that like, yeah, so we're here with 187 rubber tires. Like is this (laughs) just rolling them down the street? Yeah. Oh gosh. So that was really fun. Um, Sometimes it'd be like, oh, all of a sudden we need a keyboard uh, or uh, we would like some egg shakers to play with tomorrow. Can we have those? Egg shakers? What are egg shakers? Oh, you like percussion things? Okay. Yeah, exactly. A little percussion thing. Um, <laughs> and then sometimes an artist who has just been writing in a room uh, and didn't think they were going to need actors, all of a sudden they are like, oh my gosh, I have finished a draft and I would really love to hear this out loud. So sometimes we can call in professional actors from the area for like a day and see who's available. And sometimes we uh, have Berkeley rep staff who are like, they're doing their regular jobs who uh, have volunteered to sort of be on the on-call list. And um, we sort of gather them in a room and they, cause a lot of them, you know, have acting backgrounds. A lot of people act before they get into the rest of their theater life if they choose to do something else. So they can read the script aloud for the playwright. And sometimes the playwright will be like, I just want it to be just the internal ground floor folks. So after dinner, we'll sort of put chairs in a circle in one of our big rehearsal rooms and uh, we'll assign parts out to like some of the ambassadors, some of the staff, some of the other playwrights who are there. And we all just sit around and, and like hear a play getting read. And sometimes that's the most magical moment is when you get to be with a playwright as their play is getting read aloud for the first time. We had a few of those last summer and uh, I don't know, those have just really stuck with me as like the moment, one of the moments that something is born Mm -hmm. Um, and getting to share that experience with the artists themselves and with the other artists in the room. And that's really, really special. It sounds like a very special moment. Like where time stands still and you're just watching this idea be born and turn into something before your eyes. It sounds, sounds special. Yeah, it's, it's pretty great. Emily, I'm so jealous of your Junes. Your summers sounds so fun (laughs) and, and random and dynamic and, you know, being surrounded by all of these creatives with their ideas and, and random odd props and then these dinners you sound fulfilled by this experience it's maybe my favorite thing I have ever done I love it so much I get so much from it and I get to feel valuable and useful and like I get to help people I'm I'm very close to the art I get to be in direct dialogue with artists about what they need I get to work with an incredible team of people that I love who are at the top of their game. And uh, it's really fulfilling and I'm really, really lucky and I never, ever want to leave it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good because then I can come visit you there and it sounds, it just sounds amazing. Oh my God, please do. 
Okay. I seriously, like I'm known for taking on people's offers and then travel around the world. So expect me to visit sometime in the near to medium future. Excellent. I don't make those offers lightly. So come anytime. What is a moment when you feel magical? Ooh, there's like two different directions I can go with this. One, I feel pretty magical when I solve a really hard problem, like at the ground floor, or uh, I was in, it was in tech last night, actually, for the show at UC Berkeley, and some microphones got added to the dancers sort of, I think within the last day or two, it was a decision that was made. And so we had to add them into the programming. And, and so I engineer the program that we use for the live theater sound. It's called uh, QLab. You also can use it to program microphones when they come on their levels. But I had never done that before. I had never programmed microphones in QLab. And it was, it was a moment of sort of pressure and um, need. You sort of have to solve, solve a problem very quickly in the moment because time is of the essence. You only have so much time to get through working through the show. And uh, I sort of was able to figure it out in a moment when I think in previous eras of my life, I would have really doubted myself and said I couldn't do it. And that has felt like I've come a long way. So I think I feel magical when I push through my self doubts, which are sort of my default and accomplish something and like actually solve a problem. Um, that feels pretty dang good. Oof. It sounds, it sounds like a magical moment. <laughs> Emily, what is your favorite word? Ooh. Okay. It's not, Okay, one of my favorite words, and it's so funny, I just thought of it this morning and I was like, oh, what are my other favorite words? It's so funny that you're asking this question. I like ablution, like morning ablutions. Like I was washing my face this morning and I, I was like, what a fun word to have like specifically for this purpose. Ablution. Ablution. And that means to cleanse, right? It's something, it's a word that was used like in when kings and queens, like that was what they how they prep themselves for the day? I don't fully know the history of the word, but I, I, my understanding of it is uh, that it means like your morning washing ritual. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, yeah. it's totally, you're, you're totally right. It's a, it's a cleansing with water or other liquid, especially, oh, as a religious ritual. Yes. I didn't know it had religious implications. Well, maybe I take it back now. No. <laughs> and you know what? My mom has this fascination with words. So, ah. and she wants to know the meaning and the things and, like, long story short, her favorite book is a dictionary, right? So oh, she, we were yeah. talking, I don't even remember what the word in Spanish is, but it's very similar. And I was reading or I mentioned something and I'm like, what does this mean? And my mom came up with the meaning right away. And I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, that was the ritual that kings and queens did when they were preparing themselves for the day. Um, evolution. Maybe it's like... No, I don't remember in Spanish, but it's super similar. So, mm -hmm. yeah, but I yeah. it seems like you are very regal. So it makes sense for you to wash your oh, face and be please. like, oh, you flatter me. <laughs> I also like I love words that are onomatopoetic. And that word in itself is pretty cool. Onomatopoeia. Mm. Especially as it relates to sound, because it means that the word 
sounds like the sound it makes. Uh-huh. You know what I was thinking? I got my meanings confused, like taco cat. That's another thing. <laughs> when the things... Uh, that's a palindrome. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. Share an unpopular opinion. Oh, I don't like olives. <laughs> wow. I don't know. Good. Uh, no, good. That is, that's exactly what I, I mean. Not exactly what I wanted to hear, but that's a, like a good, solid, <laughs> unpopular opinion. Good. Good. That's solid. What is your favorite store? A store. My favorite place where I go into and purchase things is Piedmont Springs in Oakland in the Piedmont neighborhood. It's a, like a day spa that's just nestled into this very urban surroundings and it's like a private you have private little hot tub rooms that are half outdoors and surrounded by cedar wood and it's my happy place oh, it sounds so good <laughs> I think I relaxed just by hearing about it <laughs> I'll take you there when I give you the tour when you visit awesome I cannot wait <laughs> what was the last gift you gave someone I gave uh I gave a friend a book that I thought they needed to read. Hmm. Um, Very thoughtful. Yeah. It was a book about, it was a book about loving yourself and, and being kind to yourself. And I thought that they, through many, uh, through many conversations and knowing where they're at, I, it was something that I thought that would hopefully be helpful to them. I had read it and found it helpful. That is so sweet. <laughs> really? That is so sweet. What is your favorite play? Or seen in a play? My favorite play of late is a play called Fairview by Jackie Sibley's Drury. It's, al it's also one of my more recent favorites, uh, so it's definitely fresh in my mind. But um, it actually started as a ground floor piece. It was in its very nascent stages, and what it, what it turned out to be on stage didn't directly track. I mean, there's a through line if you knew what to look for, sort of about surveillance and... Um, people watching each other, but uh, it's really hard to talk about this play without giving away the whole game. But so people go watch it if you have if the opportunity. Anyone, if any, yeah, if you have the opportunity to watch it, I think part of why I loved it was that it. I like plays and art that makes me, that challenges me, and that makes me feel things really deeply and strongly. And this play is meant to challenge and it also uses the conventions of theater in a way that I've never seen like it's a thing that can only happen live it's an experience that can only happen live in the room with that play and I think that made it really really special wow I can't wait to watch it it's coming back to it'll be in Brooklyn I feel like sometime in the next few months It's getting a remount in Brooklyn. I don't have a New York trip uh, yeah. <laughs> yet, but it sounds like it's a, a must. It's worth it. A must see, yes. When was the last good cry you had? Oh, gosh. Um, the last good cry. Oh, um, Pittsburgh, when the synagogue shooting happened. Oh, I don't know if that was a good cry, yeah. but that was the last time I cried really hard. You cried really hard. Yeah. Mm, what makes you feel human? I feel human when I 
am connecting with people either somebody new like you who like I just click with right away and as you said we can dive into the deep end or diving into the deep end with really close friends of mine who I have let in and who have let me into their lives and who we sort of see each other and love each other for exactly who we are oh thank you <laughs> I feel the same way yeah like I love connecting with other beings Yeah. Also makes me feel human. So I, I feel you on that. And lastly, Emily, do you have any crazy travel stories? The one that comes to mind is uh, my family, we wouldn't get gifts around the holidays. Instead, my parents would, would take us traveling. They love to travel. And we were very lucky to get to go with them a lot of places. And in the winter of 2006, We were supposed to, my parents had planned this whole trip to Morocco and uh, there was a horrible, horrible snowstorm about 48 hours before we were supposed to leave town and, and everything got delayed and we were like, people were sleeping on the floor of SeaTac airport in Seattle and we were at the airport for, I want to say like 16 hours or something and we made it to New York, which is where we were supposed to get a connecting flight to Morocco. And my parents were like back and forth to the airport to try to, to figure things out. And we, because we missed our connecting flight, we were going to sort of miss the first leg of the trip and it just was going to domino effect. And my poor parents just decided to like scrap the whole thing. And we ended up staying in New York and We got to see a bunch of shows, which of course made me very happy, um, but it ended up being this sort of like very resilient family time. You know, we sort of didn't get to do what we wanted to do, but we found a way to have fun together anyway. And I think that was a really, really good lesson of like, you can always make a diamond out of, what is it you make diamonds out of? Pressure. <laughs> pressure yeah you no but always, like making yeah. it sounds like you made the most out of it you made the yeah, most exactly. out of your togetherness and out of that trip that was not cut short but that where things didn't go as they as yeah, they, I, they were planned absolutely I think it taught me that the people you're with is more important than what you're doing necessarily what was your favorite show of those all of those that you watched that you saw that time oh we got to see the original Broadway cast of Spring Awakening. And I was uh, 20 years old. So it just, it spoke to me in a really deep way. And uh, that was, it was a really, it was a really incredible experience. And we got to like meet all the cast, all the cast members afterwards. And it was really fun. Emily, you're such a magical human. Thank you for sharing all of this with me and us, you know, because there's, when these airs, all these people are going to listen all over the world. <laughs> oh um, boy. Yes. You're such a special human. I didn't know what to expect to a certain point because I'm not that literate in theater. And also because we haven't met in person <laughs> or we, because we haven't had any interactions before, but this made my day and <laughs> when I ask you like oh what makes you feel human and you're like yeah people that want to go into 
dive into the deep end. I just imagine yourself like holding hands and yeah, let's dip <laughs> in the dive. Just like no consequences. Let's just go. Cannonball. Yes. So <laughs> thank you for your time and sharing the amazing work you do at Berkeley with us. I'm sure this won't be the last time we hear from you because you're onto great things. I'm so honored really to be talking to you. And I'm just, I'm so happy that you're doing what you're doing and making these connections and talking to people and shedding a light and promoting a wonderful sense of, of connection and lifting people up. And I just think you're amazing. Thank you so much, Emily. And um, Thank you. I cannot wait to hug you in person. Me too. Right back at you. This is what I am taking away from my conversation with Emily. Number one, the way you become resilient is by experiencing life. You don't learn how to pick yourself back up unless you've been knocked down. Number two, you are worthy even if you experience some blockages in the way. You are always worthy no matter what. Number three, When you're clear about what you want to do, approach a professional in that field and ask them what do you have to do next. What do you need to do in order to make it happen? Number four. Sometimes the best things come out of curiosity. You might be presented with an opportunity to do something and you won't know what it means. Just do it. Amazing things could happen. Number five. We need to recognize our common humanity and our common worth. Number six. A great practice in theater production and in life is asking, what can I do for you? How can I help you? Number seven. Sometimes you don't get to do what you want to do, but find ways to have fun and make the most out of it. It's like a blessing in disguise. The people you're with are more important than what you're doing. Number eight, go check out your local nonprofit theater. A thriving arts community is good for everyone. In Portland, you can check out the Northwest Children's Theater and School and the Portland Story Theater, both nonprofit local theaters. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and you feel a little bit more inspired, more magical, more human. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the show. Say hello to me on Instagram and tell me what resonated with you or what did you like the most about today's episode. If anything you listened to made you think of someone, please go share it with them. The world is a better place when we make each other feel seen. And again, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. I see you, I hear you, I love you. Talk to you next week. Bye. This show is produced by Annie Fassler of Puddle Creative with music by Megan Diana and cover art by Vania Vananina, that's me, and Maya Busby. Busby.